Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. I suppose the beauty of doing intelligent speech is that I don't know who I'm going to speak to from one episode to the next, which would probably account for the reason why I put them out somewhat sporadically. But therein lies the fact that what I do is wait to find one of these rare gems, somebody who has um, a take on life and lives their life in a way which is atypical to most. They um, have a studied past uh, and mo- most probably a glorious future ahead of them, but also come from a somewhat of a, um, an illustrious background. And they, and they use their body in um, ways of which are truly stupendous. And this week, through fate, through the fickle finger of fate wa- waving its digits in my direction, I met uh, that person. So I'm speaking to Jenny. How are you, Jennifer? Great. How are you doing? Not too bad. Now, you're all in splendid isolation in New York, aren't you? I am, thanks to COVID-19. And how are you enjoying it? Or are you even enjoying it? Well, this is the thing. And that's the reason why I thought, "Mm, I need need to talk, talk to this person. Most people don't actually want to be by themselves. Why is it important for you? that right here and now, um, you have nobody around you. Well, I live here in New York City with two roommates who are usually out during the day, but when they got the word that they would both be working from home, I realized that as an opera singer, I wouldn't have the freedom to practice and to make noise and do all the things that I usually do. And so when my friends right around the corner left the city and said, well, why don't you just live in our apartment? I jumped at the chance because now for the first time in, oh dear, 15 years or so, I'm, I'm living by myself. I'm also a classic introvert. Being around people all the time is really draining on me. Although I do like, I'm social, but I do like to be alone. And so this is pretty great. See, I get confused by that because... In the very brief time that I've known you, you've been very outgoing, uh, very effusive, and, and somewhat socially gregarious. So square that circle for me. How are you an introvert if you can get on stage and sing soprano in front of thousands of people? 
Well, it's very draining. And when a lot of my colleagues who are extroverts finish the show, they want to go out for drinks. I finish the show and go, okay, I'm going to go back to my dressing room and just sit in the quiet in the dark for five minutes and and get the energy back. I can be very outgoing and I enjoy conversations and that kind of thing, but I'm the one that you're going to find in the corner at a big party. But the person in the corner of the party, right? Are you, the person in the corner of the party is generally the one that's a little bit dull though, but you're not dull, are you? No, I guess not. Or is the person in the part in the corner of the party, is that the person who you have that wonderful one-on-one with? Yes. And let's have a one-on-one. Um, you were born in Ohio in a small backward town called Cincinnati that no one's ever heard of. <laughs> right. Um, tell me a little, tell me, tell me your first memory. What's your first memory? What's the first thing you remember as a little wee Jennifer? I was, I remember riding my big wheel up and down our street. And Mm -hmm. I remember one of my first visual memories is looking down the stairs at my mom who was lying on the couch and thinking, wow, she's getting really heavy. She's changing. And of course, she was pregnant with my younger brother. Mm -hmm. But I remember mom's lap disappearing. Wow. It disappeared so you couldn't get on it. Right. Dad didn't change for some reason. I don't get that. (laughs) Uh, were you close to your parents growing up not growing up i am now my mom is one of my best friends but at the time it was it was a rough a rough childhood really why so i hope my mother never hears this my mother is not very emotionally mature and probably shouldn't have had kids and dad realized what he'd gotten into a little bit too late Mm -hmm. and they just they were always arguing Mm mm-hmm so I got out of Cincinnati at 18 and haven't really been back with the exception of the occasional visit. And do you think it's age and distance which has brought you closer to your mother or has she changed maybe? It's age and distance. It's a realization that I can live and let live and that she can do the things she does and keep house the way she keeps house and I can move 900 miles away and do my thing mm-hmm. so that what what you've described is um hardly the most ideal of uh relationships with your parents at least w- when you were younger but do you and have you still remained uh close friendships with people that you grew up with in cincinnati that you went to school with yes uh, i'm still in touch with my very first boyfriend So once in a while, we email back and forth, and I'm still in touch on a regular basis a couple times a week with Mm -hmm. my best friend starting in elementary school. We've been friends all this time. I know something about you, which is the reason why I said, OMG, oh my God, we need to completely and utterly do this. But I need to get there in an organic way. So it's not a handbrake turn for the listeners. But I'm presuming, or at least the listeners would presume, that you had a fairly typical um, adolescence, which means uh, falling in love with a member of the opposite or the same sex. How right am I so far? 
Um, you're right in that when I was 14, I developed a major crush on a guy. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I think if you're older than 14, we can all say we've once been 14. Um, tell me about that crush. Tell me about those feelings. Um, he was he was tall and I'm only 5'2", so he was tall and that was fun. And he was the best friend of my childhood girlfriend's boyfriend. So the two boys were best friends, the two girls were best friends, and we used to get together all the time uh, to play cards or, or whatever we silly things at 14 we were doing. Those two would go off and have their date nights by themselves Mm-hmm. And we would be in his basement and then we would sit on the couch and I didn't understand why his mom wanted the basement door to be open at all times. I didn't get it. So I didn't, I didn't understand why his mom wanted the basement door to be open at all times. I didn't get it. Mm-hmm. And then he would, we would watch a movie or whatever. And then he would kiss me. I like, what are you doing? Ew, don't, don't do that. Don't do that. So, so because this is the thing, right? Generally, um, most people, when they have a bit of a crush and the object of their affections is right next to them, they kind of do want that physical um, affection back, don't they? Mm-hmm. Well, most people do. So you realize that even though you wanted to be with him and you had these mushy feelings you had a crush but you didn't actually want him to touch you nope not in any intimate way and how did he react to that he i mean we were only 14 and being raised in suburban cincinnati so i'm not sure (laughs) Hmm. he wasn't really happy about it I mean, he he understood my reticence to have sex. I don't think that was on the table. The he he wanted to do more than I did. We dated for about a year and a half, and that was eventually what broke up the relationship was the fact that I couldn't do those things that by that time everybody else was doing. And I suppose it's also a time when you are trying to understand the changes that are going through your body. And and also, uh, you're discovering that you have this wonderful talent that your voice is an instrument as well. So you've got a lot of things going on. Mm-hmm. We all do as teenagers. Was it a year of him, and I'm sure he was a sensitive uh, young man, but of him chasing you around the sofa? No, actually. I have been very lucky that all four of the guys that I have dated have been very patient with that particular aspect of of who I am. They haven't really chased me around the sofa in that way. He he would kiss me and then wonder why I didn't want to do more. He would touch me and then be disappointed that I would repulse him. Have any arguments about it per se that I remember. At what point did you realize that this wasn't just a case of um, you'll come round to it one day that actually you just didn't want him or anyone to touch you, even though you had feelings for him. It was probably the guy I dated in grad school. That was the first time that I really fell head over heels 
in love. It was a Jeremy-centric universe, and I loved him more than anything in the world. And I wanted to be with him, and I wanted to get married. And when he would want to touch me, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't handle it. I, I didn't want it. And that's when I realized, okay, this isn't something I'm growing into. It's not, you'll find the right guy. Well, this is the right guy. Why do I not want to have sex with him? And how old were you at that point when you realized that? 22. Up until that point, had you masturbated? Had you involved in any level of petting, shall we say, to use an, a quaint old-fashioned term, with any of your boyfriends? It was a case of, did you actually physically try or could you just not? I tried and there was plenty of petting from the waist up, but from the waist down was lock that chastity belt. I wanted to have nothing to do with it. Um, and yeah, I, oh, I did try to masturbate and I got tips from my aforementioned good friend. She told me how to do it and all that kind of thing. This was before the internet. And I, it, no, I can't, I, I never could. It doesn't feel good. Yuck. <laughs> what point into your relationship into your jeremy centric world did it have to come to an end and who called it off he did he had given me a diamond necklace and on january 2nd we were making pizza we lived together for five years shared a bed for five years january 2nd he said you know let's let's eat dinner and i want to talk and my tail wagged so hard because I thought I'm going to get the ring to go with the necklace. This is why he gave me the necklace. And he said, I'm done. And it nearly killed me. It was awful. And what did he say exactly? He said, I want sex and I want kids. Not necessarily in that order, but he was 10 years older than I, and so his biological clock was ticking. And he said, we've been dating for six years, and I really thought as you finished your doctorate, your biological clock would start ticking, and it hasn't. And I really want kids. I also want sex, and that's something that's been on my mind a lot. I want kids, and I need to find somebody to have kids with. What he wanted was for you to be the utter destination for all of his physical desires but quite simply you didn't have physical desires correct how do you display intimacy closeness a bond with your partners i'm actually very physically affectionate. I love to hold hands and I love to um, spoon and fall asleep together. And I've gotten to the point where, you know, kissing is, is okay. And I like being with them, but I just don't want to have sex. Kissing, this is not the way you kiss your grandmother. Like this is proper open mouth kissing. Ugh, we can avoid that. <laughs> At what point did you realize that you were asexual and that you're asexual and you're happy with that? It's what you are. It's, it's part of one of the many labels that you have, but you're just happy with that. Well, I finally got the vocabulary 
to describe it in my mid-30s. And I, I came out at that point. And it was one of the most empowering experiences of my life because I realized there is nothing wrong with me. It's not a hormone imbalance. It's not PTSD from I don't know what. It's just the way I am. And it was a major boost in self-esteem. It was like this weight was lifted off my shoulders. I am okay. There is nothing wrong with me. And I have to say amen to that sister. But I suppose I'm I'm still, if I'm being honest, one of those people that knows that asexuality is a legitimate state of being. You know, the very fact that there's an, a label for it. So it's not like we have to scramble around and think and think of exactly what this is. You know, there are many millions of people who are just like you. But one of the key rites of passage for most adults is falling in love, expressing that physically, sexually, and then the, how that changes you, um, matures you, puts you on another path, and how you deepen your understanding of your fellow man. But you don't have that path, though, do you? So, so I think that is not the norm. If I'm being honest, that's my default position. Tell me I'm wrong. I can't because you're right. Um, it's isolating and it's lonely because it is such a component of most adult relationships that people don't understand it. And I, I understand that. Uh, it's also difficult in my line of work where I'm in theater. So most of the time I have to make you as an audience think that I really want that guy or just as often that I have had that guy, usually in secret. And lust is just not something I feel. So, and as we all know, there's nothing like that feeling of Eros. How do I portray that to you never having felt it? So how do you do that? Because that you've, you've led me exactly where I wanted to go with this, because you are um, a soprano of some repute. You've sang at Carnegie Mellon Hall. You, you, you've sang places. You, you are at the top of your game. And you, you portray women in love. Often. Mm -hmm. So how do you fake it? I recall the feelings that I had for Jeremy. I loved him and part of me will always love him. So I called those feelings up and I've spent a lot of time watching people. I've, I've watched other theater. I've watched other opera singers. I've watched other theater people. I've watched people in real life. New York City is, if, if nothing else, a wonderful place to people watch. Mm -hmm. How do they express affection? And I guess I'm lucky in that very, I've, you know, one doesn't usually have sex on stage. So I can do the stage kissing. I can do everything that one needs to do on stage. And I've been told I do it pretty convincingly. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
Petra's trying to understand. You've made me question myself. I just take it fundamentally as a given that an adult is going to find um, another adult attractive and want them to touch them and want to touch them. And I suppose it's working through that which I see as a basic given that it then surprised me that you've said, well, actually, I even tried to masturbate and it was like, yeah. Is at the heart of your asexuality a, what's the word I'm trying to search for here? Is this to do partly with feelings that you have with your body or maybe even don't have with your body um, that you can't derive pleasure from things which are sen- sensory, uh, sensory, shall we say, touch, stroking, before we get into, you know, any kind of masturbation or, or, or anything like that, that, and if that is the case, is this normal for people who are asexual? Because to me, the two aren't necessarily linked. Surely you should be able to maybe enjoy uh, touching yourself um, and still not want anybody else to touch you, but you don't even do that. So uh, unta- untangle that for me. Let me understand, please. Well, there are lots of different kinds of asexuality. There are people who aren't romantic at all and want nothing to do with intimate relationships at all. There are people like me who want a relationship but don't want sex. It's it's a spectrum. Um I don't want anything to do with physical intimacy beyond a certain point. I love, as I mentioned, I love to hold hands. I love to snuggle. I love to hug and spoon. And I don't even mind if my partner wants to kiss my neck or my shoulders. I have no instinct as to to do with that. Usually when an advance is made, there is a a counter advance and there's there's an instinct that says, okay, this is what I'm going to do now. I don't have that. You can push all the buttons and do all the things that should theoretically send me as a female into orbit. And I'll memorize the lyrics to the next aria I'm going to sing. <laughs> I, I don't know what to do with whatever you're doing. Just out um, of interest, um, and it's not an idle interest. What is the next aria that um, you are planning to sing? I'm working up the mad scene from Lucia right now. Mm-hmm. Is it a particularly complex piece? Yes, very emotionally and vocally. It's very difficult and wonderful. I am that type of layman who, who outed himself as thinking that opera was somewhat, um, at least can be, Uh, incredibly elitist and snobby and pretentious. Um, So with me outing myself as that, I appreciate it's a wonderful art form, so don't get me wrong. Um, Explain to me in layman's terms why it's complex. Why is it difficult? The Lucia Mad scene specifically? Mm -hmm. She as have many characters in the in 19th century opera she 
has been a victim of the men in her life. And she has fallen in love with one of her family's enemies, Edgardo. And they're planning to get married and they, they meet in secret. And then her brother forces her to marry this other guy. And she is told that Edgardo is never coming back. And so she signs the marriage contract under duress with this guy that she doesn't know, has probably only met a couple of times. And then Edgardo comes in, in the wedding ceremony and says, how can you be doing this? You promised your love to me. Well, she was told that he was never coming back. So now she's she's stuck between a rock and a hard place. And they are sent upstairs to consummate the marriage while the party is still going on. And she goes mad and she stabs her new husband and she comes down covered in blood and hallucinates about Edgardo in front of everybody and says, oh, we're, we're getting married and oh, wait, there's a ghost. And she's, she's wondering what everybody is doing there and, and is hallucinating. And it's, it's really an amazing scene. The emotional journey that she goes through is really wild. So you see, you, you confused me there or confounded me because what I presumed you were going to do was to tell me about technically why it was hard to sing. But actually what you said was it's hard to portray that emotion, to portray exactly what, what she's going through. So uh, as a rough percentage, how much of being um, an opera singer is the technical singing? I can hit those notes, hit those highs. And how much of it is is acting? Ooh, that's really hard. I think they're one in the same. When I, if, for example, if I am super happy to see you, I'm going to take a breath and I'm going to say, hi, Royfield, it's so good to hear your voice. And that that breath is going to kind of inform the way I greet you. It's the same thing in singing. If I'm super excited because the love of my life has walked on the stage, I'm going to go, oh, hi. And if I'm really upset because I've lost him, that's a different body language. That's a different breath. That's a different way of being in that moment. And we do these things as human beings. And the trick for acting, which goes into the technique of singing, is, is embodying everything from what you're going to sing to how you're going to sing it to how you're feeling about what you're going to sing. And when did you discover that you had this superhuman talent to be able to sing pitch perfect and at the top of your lungs? By the time I really figured it out, I was in grad school. Mm -hmm. I was, I was a very, very late bloomer. I was, I did not do particularly well in the small Midwestern school that I went to in undergrad. I didn't go to the right school. But once I got into grad school and was in the right environment for me, I started to, to figure it out and listen to the great singers of the past and emulate them and figure out what makes an opera and an opera singer tick. And I have a wonderful, wonderful coach named Michael down here in New York City that has really 
it's taught me far more in the time we've been working together than I learned in grad school or undergrad or anything. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. point did you realize that you were actually a proper bona fide opera singer? I was in my heart it was probably when I was in late undergrad probably my senior year in undergrad and then grad school was to convince everybody else of that fact. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and what happened for you to go huh I'm an opera singer now? What was that moment? <laughs> the moment that sticks in my head is during my senior recital and my parents had come up to see it and I hit a high note and I saw my dad's face and he, it was a mix of surprise and pride that only a parent can show. And I went, okay, I got him. I can do this. We talked about your mother earlier and the fact that during your childhood um, you weren't close. But we didn't really talk about your pops other than you shouldn't have been with your mum. Uh, where's dad now? What does he do? Dad is, well, he retired and now he took a job at a hardware store just to get him out of the house and moving and active. So he works part time at, at a Lowe's in Cincinnati and he really likes it. 
He's not a Bengals fan, is he? Sorry, but yes. Oh, dear. More of a Reds fan. And right okay. now during COVID-19, they're apparently airing the 1975 and 1976 World Series with the big red machine. So he's quite happy to be at home watching baseball right now. All right. So we're all an advertising hoarding for ourselves. You know, when you go out on stage and you belt out that aria, um, you're not only just delivering it for that audience there and then. You're also saying to prospective impresarios that, hey, you know, you, they, you sh- they should have you in their next production. Mm-hmm. You're here on my podcast, endearing yourself to me. So we're g- going to be now lifelong friends. I hope uh, so. I hope so too. Um, but you said earlier you want to get married. Yeah. Why should anybody want to marry you? Why? Tell me, Ad- advertise yourselves. What are you going to give that gentleman who is probably going to look at you and find you attractive and want to consummate the, the, the relationship, the marriage in a, in a very traditional way? So if sex is completely off the table why should anybody want to marry you you asked me what i would give that prospective gentleman and the answer is i will give him me and everything i am i will give him my love and my trust and my loyalty and all of the things that i can do and we we will work together to strengthen our strengths and bolster our weaknesses. And at this point, and I've given this unsurprisingly a lot of thought, I don't care if he goes out and consummates the marriage. I don't care if he goes out and has sex with another female outside the marriage. I want to know about it, but I cannot deny something that's so basic to most people to him. So he can go out and have sex. I just want to know about it. Why do you want to know about it? Is I it don't know. Be- is it because this is somebody who's going to be very close to you and sex is important and you just want to know? So, like, if I, de- let's say you and I were together and I develop uh, an interest in, uh, in stamps, would you just kind of want to know just because, hey, I want to know what's going on in your life, but you're not interested in stamps? Is it that type of, I just want to know? Or is it a case of, I want to know, so if you're going to develop feelings for this person, I can maybe head this off at the pass? Something in the middle. I mean, if you really like stamps and that's really important to you and you are really important to me, I want to know what makes you happy. That doesn't mean I'm going to usurp your stamp collection and, and you know, hover over your shoulder all the time. But yeah, you know, that's, that's kind of cool. Teach me what you want me to know about stamps. Um, Come home to me. Don't spend all night in the basement with your stamp collection. I want to know that I'm still the alpha female. Hmm. Tell me what I've got wrong about opera. Because I I saw um, Hamilton the other day. Um, I, I enjoyed it. Before I went to go and see Hamilton, and I really wanted to see it, but I'm a history bull. Um, I did say, uh, what? 
art form is there where primarily, I know it's not the case with Hamilton, but primarily it's sang in a foreign language, a language you don't understand, and of which to show your appreciation, you use uh, a word in another language, you know, bravo. And the conceit generally, again, take Hamilton to one side, but the con- Hamilton, the musical and whatever, but it's operatic, shall we say. Um, let's say that um, the general conceit is if I'm going to go and see uh, Madame Butterfly and it's sang in Italian, that I need to kind of know what the heck the story is of Madame Butterfly to have an understanding of what's going on. You know, I don't go and see a movie in a foreign language with no subtitles and have no idea what the hell's going on. So they say, that's wonderful. Bravo. That was, that was amazing. (laughs) Right. So that's where I come into um, opera. That's not to say that I don't think that the, the people who are on that stage aren't amazing, do not have incredible instruments uh, at their disposable, and that this is not high art. But it is pretentious, though, isn't it? Tell me I'm wrong. You're wrong. Um, and the reason you're wrong is because, well, you have to remember that that most of opera was written for the Italians. So they mm. were writing it in the colloquial language. They were writing it opera in Italian or French or German for the Italians, French or Germans. There are some operas in English. I see where that, I see why you have that conception. Most of the time there are super titles now, so you can see what's being said on the stage. Mm -hmm. There is something to be said for the music, of course. And I would be lying if I said that, oh, all opera plots are worth listening to and and worth getting into and mean something. There are some that are pretty trite, but there are lots of opera plots that don't have women who are 300 pounds with metal boobs and shields running around (laughs) screaming. Not all operas are like that. There are a lot of operas, say Mozart's The Marriage of Figaro, that deal with real humans and real human emotions and human emotions that are absolutely relevant to 2020. I call Mozart's Le Note di Figaro a sexual harassment opera. It's a Me Too opera. I, I hear you, sister. I hear you, right? And you're you putting up a, a good defense and as only what I would expect. I saw... At the San Francisco Opera, I saw Romeo and Juliet last year. And, okay, I know the basic plot. And there were the supertitles, which surprised me. I was like, oh, okay. Because there was this, a, a random person did come on stage and start singing. And whatever. I'm like, who the hell's that? Then you look up, okay, it was, it was uh, Romeo's uncle or Juliet's <laughs> uncle and whatever and blah, 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 blah. And and I have said to a few people, I was surprised about this, about the whole super title thing. And people have said, yeah, it's a bit of a, a bit of a thing now. Most American operas kind of do have them, not all British ones, et cetera, et cetera. But at the very end of Romeo and Juliet, and I thought it was a great production. Somebody who is visually attuned, says the person who's got a podcast, <laughs> um, I loved the the stark staging, 
the fact that the the lighting was su- such an integral part of the production. They use shadow really well and perspective, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I, I enjoyed myself, but at the at the very end when um, Juliet thinks that Romeo is dead. And then she takes the poison, and all of a sudden Romeo ju- jumps up, or it's the other way around. I, I can't quite remember. Right? There was an audible snigger in that auditorium. Right? There was because it was a little bit hammy. Then it wasn't done right. Well, I was going to. That's what I was just about to say. How much of that was bad acting, poor direction, or just the fact that? in terms of a dramatic construct, the audience is a little bit more sophisticated now. There's a load of great things you can watch on Netflix and box sets, you know, with 10 seasons of Breaking Bad with the slow unveiling of someone's psyche or motivation and whatever. You've got three hours of somebody belting out at the top of their voices. So how much of that was you got to get your head round the genre or the actor wasn't that good, or the acting wasn't that good, or the direction uh, let down the production. 85% of it is bad acting, bad direction, bad production. And I am the first one to say that I haven't seen that production, so I can't speak to it specifically. But 15% of it is probably suspension of disbelief. We are incredibly accustomed to special effects and to the media that we have in 2020. And it is kind of hard to turn ourselves back to the 19th century and realize that, you know, this was the end all and be all of entertainment for most people. This was the movies because they didn't have recordings. They didn't have any of those things. But I would say that opera is still, it can be incredibly powerful those moments shouldn't necessarily have a snicker in there. And I would guess that most of it was that particular production. Hmm. So as a relative opera virgin, and I don't know why I was mentioning Ham- Hamilton before, because that, that is a musical, which is highly related to opera, but it's not quite the same thing at all. Um, but um, I'm an opera virgin, practically. What should I go and watch first? You, you're going. You're going to tell me that I'm completely wrong about this art form. This art form. This has been around for some four or five hundred years. You're going to say, Roy Field, get a grip, man. Watch <laughs> this. What should I be watching? Verdi's La Traviata would be a, a really good way to pop your opera cherry. Isn't it funny that it occurred to me when I said I was an opera virgin? I'm speaking to a virgin. And then that virgin came back to me and says, this is how you're going to pop your opera cherry. It's somewhat um, maybe apt for us to start to wind this down and maybe to muse on the fact that in casual conversation, terms around sex are banded about. Mm-hmm. And uh, you're so adept at using them. Well, I've been around them. I mean, I haven't lived under a rock. So I I can, I flirt well and I can make the dirty jokes and I can laugh at the dirty jokes. I'm right there with everybody. I can talk the talk. I just don't want to walk the walk. Uh, Jennifer, I think 
we should maybe on that note say goodbye and say hello to uh, a wonderful friendship which is going to span the atlantic ocean and then when i get back to um, california it will span the breadth of the continental united states and then when i come to new york will span the width of a dinner table Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.